Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Additionally, this episode contains some sexually explicit material during the reading. If you would like to skip that, you can skip forward to timestamp 12 minutes and 40 seconds in order to avoid that material. Welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bissingex. Listeners, I am beyond thrilled to welcome the author of The Unbroken, C.L. Clark. Shirite, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so Absolutely. excited to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super happy to have you here. Um, uh, our, our mutual friend, Hector Gonzalez, uh, I know you haven't uh, heard our one Feb... Uh, Feb... No? Time is fake. October. October is the month. Uh, <laughs> the episode from October that uh, Hector was on, but uh, they would very much like to cook you a meal at some point because they absolutely adored The Unbroken. I would love to eat that meal. Yeah. I mean, we've seen Hector's cooking. We want that food. Yes, yes. Uh, and and we're going to talk more about The Unbroken, but uh, before that, we're going to be getting into an excerpt of a trunked novel, Bitch of Maradon. Is there anything we need to know before we get in? Um, I don't know. Probably, yes. But I can't <laughs> even, like, I don't even know what, like, it was a million years ago, it feels like. I think um, I wrote this in 2000 nine yeah and that so, was a, a million years ago yeah you, like you said time is fake and there's definitely a wormhole in there somewhere that just sucked yep. right out of the middle of that um it it feels like a really long time ago and i i i don't even i just i do want to say that i love talking about people's dead stories like i just adore mm-hmm. it so that's why i'm excited to be here and now that I'm looking back on my own dead story, I'm excited to see <laughs> what we will discover talking oh, yeah. about it and and even comparing it to the unbroken and and you know what survived and what didn't and oh yeah. Stuff. All right. Well, I am ready to get into it when you are. Okay. Um, the bitch of Maradon, chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> Rodneal. Crown Princess of Maradon sat at the right hand of her father and waited for him to call her birthday banquet to order. So did all the other nobles at the great table, there to bow and scrape and curry favor with the heir apparent to the cushy throne of Maradon. The table groaned under its heavy burden of steaming hams and soups, spices making Rodniel's mouth water. The third person to her right across the table, the Duke Postrin of Verum, his belly keeping him from sitting all the way up to the table, eyed the roast duck in front of him greedily, his eyes impatiently flicking to the king. Everyone waited on his benediction in the name of the father for his daughter's twenty-second birthday. Father, Rodniel prodded him gently under the table while whispering out of the corner of her mouth. She was also eyeing the roast duck greedily. <laughs> hmm. <clears throat> he startled and huffed, his breath rattled in his chest. The benediction, father... He blinked his roomy eyes around the table at the dukes and their wives, the lesser nobles, all waiting for him. Well, (laughs) what are you waiting for? He chuckled weakly, but he hadn't been his normal, boisterous self for months. With the father's blessing, celebrate my daughter's aging. Father knows I'm tired of celebrating mine. (laughs) Most of the nobles tittered appreciatively and attacked their food with dainty knives and forks. Verum's cheeks were full as he laughed and waved his utensils around. Minstrel, Duchess of Marivelle, sat next to him. She spent most of her time moving her food from one side of her plate to the other, a permanent scowl on her face, and she flinched each time a piece of food flew from her neighbor's mouth. 
In front of Rodniel was Tormrun, Duke of Valen, his golden blonde braid almost long enough to rival Rodniel's. His charm mm. usually rolled off of his tongue in waves, but he was very absorbed with the chicken leg on his plate, picking at it with his soft fingers. Rodniel had never seen him once in the practice yards. His palms were as smooth as Adnil's thighs. Adnil sat at the far end of the table with the other sons and daughters of the dukes and duchesses. Rodniel caught her eye, and Adnil smiled slowly and winked. <laughs> Rodniel muffled a groan, then sighed. Judging by the speed with which everyone but Verum ate, it would be some time until she was back in Adnil's arms for the night. King Rodnan had been served a bowl of thin broth, but he hadn't touched it. Father, would you like me to send for a servant to help you eat? she asked under her breath. It would not be the first time someone had helped him eat, but it would be the first time it had happened in public. Hmm. Rodian, stop your worrying. The use of her intimate name and the squeeze on her leg were reassuring. I'm just not hungry right now. I'll send for food later. Even as he spoke to her, he nodded and smiled at the men at the table. He spoke very little, though. Princess, Valen smiled respectfully and bowed his head when he had her attention. Oh, Princess Rodniel, do speak with us. Minstrel and I were just having a slight argument about the Fae. Hmm. What do I care of the Fae? The Fae were not important to the rule of the nation, and they seldom came into Greater Meridon. Their kind weren't always looked kindly on by the citizens. Precisely. I've been speaking with the High Vizier, and he and I are agreed that it is in Meridon's best interest to start clearing some of the forest at the southern borders of Valen. We wouldn't clear them all out, of course, but surely the Fae do not need all of that land. Valen, you're being greedy. <laughs> Marivelle's frown deepened. She looked like she was trying very hard to ignore Verum's loud slurps and belches. The Fae have lived there for ages without disruption. The first king of Meridon and the lords of the Fae agreed it so. Ah, but it's only old men that remember that. Valen eyed. Marivelle unsubtly. And you. <laughs> Rodniel noticed branching wrinkles spreading from the corners of the Duchess's eyes. When had those gotten there? The Duchess had been in power in Marivelle as long as Rodniel could remember. She had been left in control on the death of her husband, left with her son Amron as her heir, and her daughter Adnil. Rodniel smiled in anticipation, and then frowned in, impati in impatience. Come now, Marivelle. Rodniel patted the air between her and the Duchess. I'm sure Valen has some validity in his claim. It is an ancient writ. It was more for when there were more of them. I hear that they are a dying breed. I'm sure they don't need all the forest anymore. They won't miss a few acres, I'm sure. Mm. One of Marivelle's dark eyebrows rose sharply and she smiled. Of course, Highness, I'm sure you are right. Um, and then I'm going to skip down just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, um... Adnil was already in Rodniel's chamber. With a nod, she dismissed the servants in attendance. With the door closed and the windows cast open, the moonlight starkly highlighted Adnil's cream nightgown, her pale shoulders, her high cheekbones. It cast her blue eyes in shadow. The spring breeze brought the sound of the town's revels and ruffled the layers of her clothing, which, Rodniel admitted, wasn't much clothing at all. But she had no problem with this. Rodniel shrugged out of her blue doublet, and then Adnil was there, helping to unbutton the cream chemise beneath. The breeze was even colder on her bare skin, and Rodniel got goose flesh where Adnil's fingers touched and slid across her skin. Rodniel shivered with delight, with anticipation, and caught Adnil's mouth with her own. She wove her hands through Adnil's dark hair, her fingers tightening when the other woman's fingers brushed a nipple. Ah, uh, Adnil sighed as her neck was pulled back. Mmm. <laughs> Rodniel placed <laughs> delicate kisses down the woman's long, pale neck and then sucked firmly. It was the fashion to wear high-necked gowns, and for that, Rodniel was grateful. <laughs> Rodniel was not sure Marivelle would approve of the nature of their relationship. Not many nobles did, because it didn't produce any heirs. Any head of house, so inclined, would be expected to furnish a consort. Not that any nobles did. As Adnel's nightgown slipped from her shoulders and bared her body, Rodniel decided that she would be the first. At a tug in the waist of her trousers, Rodniel looked up. Rodian. A breathy sigh in her ear, Adnil's warm breath sent a pleasant chill running down Rodniel's back and into her pants. Another insistent tug. Rodin! <laughs> Almost a moan, a cross between false annoyance and real desire. A lot of desire. Rodin, not like, uh, you'll ruin the... Mm. 
The silk. With one hand, Adnil held Rodniel's knee back. With the other, she undid the ties on Rodniel's tight knee-length breeches. The awkwardness of her trousers, tangled between her legs, left Rodniel no choice but to kick them off over her hose. And your... Oh, the father's balls. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Adnil's hands tangled in, Rod- in Rodniel's hair as the princess's hands roamed intimately. Highness... Rodniel was taken aback for a moment. She and, and Adnel had agreed to ignore titles when they were in bed together. <laughs> then the innermost door to her chamber rattled, and the voice came again louder. Highness! <laughs> Rodniel's voice caught in her throat as Adnel shrieked and clamped Rodniel's head between her legs in her hurry to cover herself. <laughs> the door burst open, and a harried servant burst in. Hair disheveled and a livery jacket askew as if he had run there and hadn't had time to compose himself. Father's damn cock! Rodniel roared, tearing himself <laughs> free and glaring at the servant, holding a sheet across her waist. What in fate do you want? The man stared, wide-eyed between the two women, his gaze notably resting on Rodniel's uncovered chest because Adnil had hidden completely underneath another blanket, only a tuft of her brown hair at the top to reveal her identity. Well, uh, Highness... He bowed belatedly. The king! Rodniel's anger at her disappointed ardor quickly disappeared, and she scrambled for the breeches she had kicked away. What about him? Well, turn around. Don't think I'll let you gawk and tell your brothers in the servants' quarters. The man was veritably trembling. He he asked for you, my highness. He may be dying. Her body went cold. She tossed aside her chemise and threw on Adnil's nightgown, sprinting from her chambers to the corridor. It was empty except for the odd servant, tidying from the evening's feast. The servant, who had sent for her, struggled to keep up. Rodniel could hear his labored breathing and halting footsteps. Her own feet slapped against the bare rugs as she raced to her father's sick room. She knew the way to it as well as her own room. Her father had lived in these rooms more than his rooms of state lately. He said all the pomp bothered him when he could barely breathe out of his own lungs. Hmm. He had been sick for so long. How could she not have acknowledged his death as a possibility? She had worked so hard to keep him hale and sturdy. Oh, father, please. And she wasn't sure if she was pleading for her father to recover or the father above to intervene. Uh, we'll stop there. Ooh. That was a delight in more than one way. <laughs> I, I, one of my favorite things about doing this show is... Uh, Finding the places that we as authors have forgotten about and just can't help but, you know, break the fiction for a second. I, oh man, that was a ride. That was a ride. <laughs> I, I, I think right at the start of the second season of this show, I, I asked one of my friends to turn the tables on me and, and host the show for me so that I could oh. read something and it was, uh, it it was certainly a trip. I it was it was definitely one of those things that I wrote before I had learned like oh you do actually have to read everything aloud to know mm-hmm. how it sounds because your yeah. eyes will just skip right over the bad words in mm-hmm. it, you know the the badly placed words. No words are bad. George Carlin told us this, but mm-hmm. but uh, the the poorly selected words yes yes and yes again (laughs) (laughs) even just like thinking about it for 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 this podcast i like i i kind of murmured to myself as i was reading through just to know roughly where i would um Mm -hmm. be and it didn't i you know i just skimmed so much of it i got nothing tripped as much as out loud but yeah that's fair that's fair and again, this was written, you know, a whole millennium ago in 2009. Yeah, I feel like a completely different person. I've certainly learned a lot more, um, I don't know, a lot more about tropes, a lot more about, like, pitfalls and stuff, and, and yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Was this a NaNoWriMo novel? It was. It was my first Fantastic. ever. Oh, man. First ever NaNo and first ever completed novel. That is, that is fantastic. <laughs> uh, we are 
of course speaking to you from the far distant future, uh, or rather we are speaking to you from the, the far distant past of, uh, what is this? It is November 26th, so mm-hmm. you, uh, anybody who is, yeah, you're all in nano right now, but listening to this, you have uh, finished your novel, possibly. Uh, you've done a great job regardless, because any words written in November are a win. Uh, and hopefully you're taking a well-earned rest right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as, I, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show, though, uh, one of the things we want to talk about is your fantastic novel, The Unbroken, mm-hmm. which was also a NaNoWriMo novel and is now a book that you can go and buy at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, that one was a, uh, that one was not intended to be a nano novel, but I knew that I would use nano to, um, make a good chunk of it, mm-hmm. like a good chunk of headway. And so I waited, I did all of the prep, um, and the months leading up to it. And I officially, officially started, um, in November and then carried on throughout. I think I, I got like 60 K maybe done in the month and then not kept bad writing at all. it. Yeah. I mean, I what? Think... That's that's like 2,000 words a day. That's yeah, not nothing. Yeah. I was very pleased with it. I was very pleased with it. I don't I don't remember where I like what was happening cuz The Unbroken then and The Unbroken now is very very different, of course. Mm-hmm. Um so I I don't even know what was happening then if I like I don't think I I put a the end even on the book. I think I was just literally halfway and kept going. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's uh, every, every, I've won two <laughs> NaNoWriMo's of the uh, like half dozen I've participated in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have not finished a book in NaNoWriMo. I've, you know, I've, I've gotten 50 some odd thousand words and uh i think i maybe last year kept writing a little ways into december and then was just like i am exhausted and i am going to put a pause on this and then never picked it back up (laughs) (laughs) i think um the bitch of maradon i did i did hit the like 50k and end um mark or thereabouts and um I'm sure if I were to read the whole thing through, you would be able to tell because it's it it isn't it wants to be an epic fantasy like that's what I write, mm-hmm. and so you know an epic fantasy that like fifty thousand words is like one third of the book. Yeah. And so, and so to have this, um, like to be looking at it right now, I just can only imagine what's actually missing. Uh huh. Yeah, I was going to say 50,000, like Brandon Sanderson writes that at lunch. That's like every a prologue, day. yeah. Yeah. It's wild how that happens. And it's also like, you know, it's really useful to know how to use NaNoWriMo. And that it sounds like, certainly for the Unbroken, that that's something that you took full advantage of. Like, mm-hmm. NaNoWriMo is not a time to be particularly precious with your words or ideas because mm-hmm. you're writing. I mean, you know, some people write at that speed and can write a fully formed novel that doesn't need very much work mm-hmm. in that time. All the more power to them. <laughs> I could personally never. But, like, you know, it, it's a it's a time when you're in community and you're getting the words out. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that the community is what's in it for me. Because at this point, I do write more or less full time. So I do, that is kind of my expected output when I'm drafting. Revision mm-hmm. is a different story entirely. Um, so hitting like 15 to, sometimes if I'm lucky, like um, it'll be like a 3K day. But that's when I'm like super in flow, hitting like oh, towards, yeah. the, towards the end of a book type thing. Um, but yeah, so like a 2K day type is a nice steady average usually, but, um, I'm usually doing that by myself. And so mm-hmm. that's really, really lonely. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so I do look forward to November and I, I haven't actually officially signed up. I don't think for mm-hmm. any nanos 
Maybe maybe I did last year, but I I haven't been doing it regularly, and I feel like it's just just the buzz alone of people talking about it and like mm-hmm. you know like writing groups and stuff just gives me the oomph to yeah for sure, and I I think like my perspective on Nanorimo and the need for like signing up on the site has shifted over the years and I, mm-hmm. I imagine this is the same for you as well where like you know in 2009 I I did my first semi NaNoWriMo in 2011 where I was mm-hmm. I was already working on a book and uh was just like I'm gonna finish this in November I spoiler alert did not <laughs> <laughs> finished it in like oh August of the following year I think I wrote okay, the end yeah, you finished it. I finished it. Yeah. Uh, it was it was problematic, but I finished it. But like, you know, when when I did that in 2011, like, I didn't have the writing community that I have now, where like, you know, we're we know so many writers that you know we don't need to be tracking the words on the NaNoWriMo site to be staying hype to be you know tracking these things with our friends right exactly exactly um and now that it's my job i don't (laughs) um like i it it would the nano site itself would like seeing the little bar go up and stuff it would be a big part of the accountability and everything but now Mm -hmm. that it is my job i like i am accountable to my paycheck (laughs) yeah um yeah i mean it it is nice to see the numbers on the graph go up yes line go up feels real good but yes, like yes um but i now have that on my scrivener second. i have that on my scrivener there's a, the little bar that counts up so that is still very important to me in my mm-hmm. process and i need a bar somewhere to show me that i'm going yeah but yeah no i i have maybe well no i have a lot of reasons why i didn't really do nano this year like autistic burnout for one just, mm-hmm. you know, as an example, but uh, I definitely, like, last year and the year before, having my own graph in addition to the, uh, in, di- in addition to the one on NaNoWriMo was definitely, like, you know, I it's not just line go up, it's also, like, colors change, and, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, we, you know, we, we danced around this a little bit before the unbroken as it was uh written in NaNoWriMo pretty different book than the unbroken the uh best-selling novel you can go and buy right now <laughs> uh can you talk us a little bit through kind of the process uh yeah there, there's like the high level process that is the same for everybody of like you know it gets acquired it goes through edits it becomes a book but like the low level is you know, different for every person and has its own, uh, its own things in it. And I'm wondering if there are any, uh, like standout bits of that for you. Mm -hmm. I think, um, on the whole, the process, there are parts that are very, very typical. And then there are parts that are very atypical. Um, so like, all right, so we'll start, start from the beginning. So I did, I started the book in Nano Mm -hmm. and, um, I also don't think I finished it until the next the next year's August. Fantastic! Um, it's a great. It, that's about the the right time, I guess. A, a nice yeah. full year, um, and um, it was actually right before I went to grad school for creative writing. Um, I went to go get my MFA, and um, then I tried to work on it mm-hmm. in the process, but MFAs and workshops. Um, are usually better suited to short stories just because it's hard to workshop a novel. Uh, mm-hmm. But my my instructors and my classmates were really good at just going with the flow. And sometimes I would submit novel chapters. Sometimes I would submit short stories, completely unrelated. But um, anyway, regardless, I, I did use the novel for my thesis. And I think at that point, um, it's a three-year-long program. I had written the book maybe two-ish more times, so a total of three drafts. Yeah. yeah. And then I started querying it. Um, 
and by started querying it, I mean like sent out my first um, forays um, mm-hmm. in 2017, which would have been the year I graduated from the program. Um, so that spring, as I was finishing thesis and stuff, I started like doing the queries and um, my query must have been banging because I got <laughs> hits all the time for the query. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get an agent. It's going to be the best thing ever. I'm amazing. <laughs> and they were like requesting the partial, requesting the full. And then I waited. Oh. And then I waited. And then I waited. And then the rejection started coming in. And they oh, were yeah. so consistent um, with like very little feedback. I got a couple R&Rs though. And so I was like, okay, well, clearly let me rewrite the book again. Mm-hmm. And um, so I turned it in, turned in one R&R and revise and resubmit for those who don't know um and so the agent rejected that r&r and then right after that i sent out that same to some new query um query full request and then an agent r&r'd the one that the other agent had just rejected and i was like okay fine (laughs) but at that point i was just so beaten down and this Mm -hmm. is probably like um, the end of 2017. So this wasn't even like a like a long haul thing. This is just the first year of querying, and I was like, this sucks. This oh is yeah. Awful. <laughs> um, and um, luckily, I had some friends in my corner who were like, "No, you really do have something worth keeping at." Because I was like, "Look, what if I just you know blow this agent off and start a new novel and just do that?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, "No, no, 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 no. Just do it. Just keep doing it." Um, I'll even read it again because these are excellent friends who had already read a draft of it and they were like, I will read it again. if The you kind just... of friends you need. This is literally the best kind. And, um, and so I stuck with it. But this time I was like, I, I'd been kind of thinking, oh, you know, this is a cool idea. I'll put it in when I get the agent, when I rewrite it and stuff. And mm-hmm. I was like, this time, everything that I ever have even thought goes in now. Like, I want, when I'm going to retire this story after the next round of submissions to agents, and I want to make sure that I have done everything I could have to Mm -hmm. possibly own this story. And um, so I did. And I I think so that we start the clock again at like 2018. Um, I worked on it until like an entire extra year. Um, So hit us at spring 2019 and yeah (laughs) that was a long it was a long slog and and it wasn't continuous work because i did get depressed and just like throw it away and i was trying to find a job and i was like i'm never going to be a writer so maybe i should retrain as this thing instead and all Mm -hmm. sorts of like hot messery and um and yeah, luckily at my partner at the time, well, still now, but at the mm-hmm. time she was like, no, just do it. Like, yeah, sure, do do job stuff if you want, but don't stop this part also. Mm-hmm. And so you guys can see the trend. I had like a really great personal support team. Mm-hmm. And um, so I finally, finally finished and... Um, I had also, at this time, I've been working my way into just the SFF community more. I've been I've been working as an editor for Podcastle at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew more people in the industry. I'd been submitting short stories. A couple had been bought at this point. Um, and so, you know, I had a presence online and even knew some editors. Like, they would like a story link I tweet about every now and then. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, we're in love. Um, Which, what really. a boost to get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And I'd done some pitch contests, which is how I, you know, I'd submitted to some agents. And none of them had obviously, they hadn't panned out. Mm-hmm. Um, but enough, it had gotten enough that people, like, you know, editors would see the post and they'd be like, oh, well, you know, whenever you get an agent, mm-hmm. let us know. And I was like, all right, fine. Just where's the agent? Yep. And um, so I've, I tweeted I, I tweeted about um, finishing 
the novel. Mm-hmm. And I was very elated. I used the um, traditional Frodo into the fire. It is done. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, a classic of the genre. Yeah, right. Very important. And so then one of the editors who apparently just like was aware of me in the sphere was like, hey, congratulations. Um, let's, you know, like, let's stay in touch. Tell me what, tell me about this novel. Maybe I can mm-hmm. see like a little like bit about it. Um, and then I knew that I was going to submit queries and stuff. And so I was able to uh, leverage that interest and be like, hey, agents, by the way, this editor is interested and mm-hmm. we have someone to submit it to. And so that that made them a lot more responsive. Um, but there was one agent in particular who I had queried before. Um, she found me in a div pit contest. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I should actually like DV pit. I don't know if everybody says div pit like I do in my head. I say um, <laughs> div pit in my head as well. I'd, okay, yeah. I am one of those people. Um, so this agent found me then, but... Um, she's based in California. And so that year she was like, you know what, this is a great partial, but my whole, my whole city's on fire. So I can't do anything with this right now. Like mm-hmm. literally on fire. Um, if you don't have an agent later, um, reach out to me again when I'm open to queries again. And it just so happened that in 2019, she was open again. And so there were a couple agents who offered and she offered as well. And she's the one I ended up going with. And we submitted to the agent who was like, hello. <laughs> and um, so she bought the book. And so I'm now uh, at Orbit. And that's that's the long, typical but untypical yeah. life of the unbroken. We love, we love to see it. And it, like that highlights just so much of like, you know, I think I think the biggest thing is it highlights like eyes on the page, eyes on your own page. Like mm-hmm. that is like you said, it, it's a typical, untypical thing. It's the sort of story that I've heard before from you know other other guests on this show, other writing friends in general. Mm-hmm. It's not something you should expect, but it's something that's just like well within the realm of possibility, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the result is a great book that you can go and own. <laughs> and I mean, I think so much of it, like I, I credit so much of that success moment to the fact that I did just stop stressing about the book and I went and started doing other things that fulfilled me in the community. So like I started mm-hmm. editing, I got into short fiction. Um, I just like I broadened my range and mm-hmm. I got to know people. And I think that helped um, that helped a lot. Yeah, yeah, it, it, both in terms of the craft aspects and also just in terms of the, like, community support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, To go back to uh, what you were saying about when you decided on that uh, second or third R&R to just throw everything that you loved that you wanted to put in later, to just throw that in now, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. is, like such I don't know if it, it almost feels like a benediction of just like you know do the thing that you love mm-hmm. like put the things that you love about the story into it now don't worry about like waiting till later yeah because I think your joy is what other people's joy will be I think it was part joy but also I think it was labor I was I was afraid of the work like oh yeah to, to make this change here would mean overhauling this change and to make Mm -hmm. this change here would mean overhauling this and I think I didn't want to I wasn't ready to commit myself to the work and I mean that's the thing like writing a a good novel is work writing a bad novel is work (laughs) (laughs) writing a novel is work any writing any novel is work and Mm -hmm. you have to put the time in and you no matter what are going to have to go back through and go back through and things won't work and I think that was probably the most valuable lesson I got out of that that stretch of a year was if you want to do something right, you mm-hmm. need to take the time to do it. Um, yeah. And that's never that's never going to go away. It's always going to be the case. Um, and you can be happy with something that is not like, quote unquote, objectively perfect or your best work. 
Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that's fine. But at this point, I had realized that it wasn't fine because I was like, if this is the only chance I have to do this, would I mm-hmm. do it like this? And the answer was no. So I had to go back and do the work. Yeah. As they say. Yeah. Uh, it. I. I. I am not a programmer, but I do computers as my day job, and sometimes that does mean writing programs. And uh, what you're saying about like sort of just those cascading changes mm-hmm. is so. Uh, so familiar to me both from the fiction level and also from the code level because sometimes mm-hmm. you're like sometimes you just write the thing the worst possible way because you just need like I just need to flip this one bit and yeah. I can't get it to work any other way so I'm just going to you know do it the bad way now <laughs> and then you realize like you know, you, you get to this point where you're like, oh, shit. The bad way has... The, the bad way is, is holding me back now. Yeah. And like, okay, I, I have to do it the right way. But that's going to, you know, touch 8 million things. And in the process of touching, like, oh, this function and this function and this function, like, you're going to have to rewrite those as well. And then, you know, like, find the mm-hmm. optimizations eventually. But like... You know, that that's what you got to do to get the thing working, whether it is a short story yeah. or a novel or a web app or anything else. Like, mm-hmm. it, there comes a point where you have to do the work and, like, being able to recognize that is uh, something that I stick my head in the sand about a lot, <laughs> but something that's super important. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like... It, it can be scary because sometimes you, like... Doing that just means, like... Oh, I should just rewrite the whole thing. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. And so you do that for an entire extra year. <laughs> yeah. But, like, the, yeah. the end result is great. Like, you know, we... Um, I talked to Sarah Gailey earlier this year about mm-hmm. uh, their newest novel, Just Like Home, and they were like, yeah, mm-hmm. I rewrote this book three times mm-hmm. because, like, basically top to bottom from scratch because it just wasn't working Yeah, those previous times. And, like, you know, every time you rewrite it, like, for, for them, like, they realize, like, oh... You know, this thing is working better, but this thing is still... It's now you know, broken or never quite fixed, and yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so can... Uh, for for listeners who maybe have not heard of The Unbroken, uh, mm. can you tell us a little bit about that? And then uh, there's a sequel that's coming out <laughs> on uh, March 7th in the U.S., March 9th in the U.K., The Faithless. Yeah. Um, So The Unbroken is a story that's um, inspired fairly loosely um, in my colonial studies of the relationship between France and North Africa, but also um, just colonial studies in the world in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the story is about Terrain, who is a conscripted soldier who was... Uh, taken from her homeland as a child and raised within the empire to fight as a soldier for the empire. And um, she's brought back home, her and uh, a selection of her peers, to stop a rebellion that has cropped up in her homeland. So uh, people she's been estranged from for all of her life. Um, And the princess is also there to stop the rebellion as proof that she is ready to uh, take over her throne from mm-hmm. her uncle, the regent. And um, shenanigans ensue, loyalties are tested, um, stuff gets blown up. Yeah, we love to see it. Yeah. Uh, Feelings are the, had. <laughs> yeah. And the Faithless uh, is following up on that. Yes. Uh, uh, are we going to be seeing the same characters in the Faithless? Um, yes, you will be. Every, like, the people who survived uh, will, 
will be in the Faithless. And we will also get some bonus points of view from people you have been introduced to um, in book one in The Unbroken. And so I'm very, I think I'm actually very excited um, about new points of view and also some new characters who were mentioned um, and you get to see them fully fleshed out, but they were they were in the Empire at the time, so you didn't get to meet them. Mm-hmm. But we will travel to the Empire for some of these points of view and... Um, I really like them a lot. I hope you guys do Fabulous. Too. I am excited as all get out for this book. Uh, pre-orders are open right now for The Faithless. And again, that'll be out uh, just in time for my birthday on oh. March the 7th. And happy birthday in advance. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, I just, as, as we were finishing up that... Uh, lovely little promo segment i just heard this weird sound on this blue police box showed up in the room the podcast room uh and i'm wondering if we could step into this time machine and go back uh if there are any words of wisdom that uh you can offer to early career charay uh and by extension to some of our listeners I think that um, part of it is going to be the the do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, just like be patient um, enough to take the time. And I think that for those of us writers who are natural readers, which is very, very many of us, we've mm-hmm. been devouring stories all this time. I think we have internalized... Um, certain aspects of good storytelling and we're also um you know we want to learn in general to continue to get better mm-hmm. as as crafts people and i think that there is often an impatience to just get to the commercial side of things like i'm ready to sell the book i'm ready to get the agent i'm ready to have the readers and the fans and all mm-hmm. of that stuff and i i really just cannot emphasize enough the patience required to continue to work on the craft itself and work on what you want to do in your art. Mm -hmm. And even after you have gotten the agent and gotten the deals and gotten the audience, there's still patience required to make sure that you are doing the job right. And the definition of right is different for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people, it's like, I want to make sure my plots are banging. For some, it's, I want to make these characters feel like like the most realistic people you ever met. And for some, it's, I want to philosophize really well or something mm-hmm. like that and like break open groundbreaking ideas. Like whatever it is for you, you're always going to have some leveling up to do. And I would urge you to be patient in that process. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like... That's something that I mean, is, is like so vital and so uh, hard to do sometimes, like to to just have that patience. And that's, I think, something that like whatever practice it is that you're doing, like is so important to, you know, like whether you're, you know, running or weightlifting or doing or martial arts yeah or archery like yeah. yeah i i you know i took up archery as like a fun hobby this summer and like it's there's so much uh there's so much of it that i think i wouldn't be as good at if i didn't have my writing and Aikido practices Mm -hmm. to be a model for it that like, you know, I can, Hillary a decade ago would not like one, they were 25. They were fucking (laughs) punk. Like they, but like they would not have been able to be chill with not being good at a thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right out of the gate. And like would not have been chill with making 
incremental progress in a long game. Yeah. I think uh, I would have had a similar... In fact, did. I was quite certain that I was going to be published in, like, a year at the time. Just like, oh, yes, my destiny <laughs> is there. And, uh, yeah, so I, I definitely needed that advice. Um, yeah. But also, I think the advice helps because you, then you, you don't, like, when it doesn't happen, and inevitably, something's not going to happen when you think it should, mm -hmm. y you don't internalize it as your own failure. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it is your failure. You did mess up, but you know those times and you know the times when you're just beating yourself up. And, yeah. and usually we're just beating ourselves up. Yeah. 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 Oh, gosh. I, you're saying that just reminded me of even earlier, 20-year-old me going off to college and, like, convinced that... Uh, I think I started submitting fiction when I was 18, like mm. fresh out of high school, uh, wrote, wrote a story for a friend for their birthday, and then was like, hey, wait a minute, this thing's actually got some legs, I'm gonna sell this, and like, you know, become an overnight sensation off of, <laughs> mind you, one <laughs> short story sale. <laughs> Uh, and was, you know, hung all of my hopes off of this that, like, you know, mm -hmm. I was gonna, I was gonna go to college already having sold a story and, like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, I was going to college for creative writing when I finally decided I wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. But part of my brain, because I was 20, was convinced that, you know, I was going to go basically as like a flex you know like i was gonna show up i've already sold the story i know how to do this oh, and no. like thinking oh, about it now no. i'm like oh my god they were such a punk like oh man i could just imagine you showing up <laughs> in like my workshop and i'm like oh who's that kid <laughs> You know, I mean, I have I have a lot of love for the person I was then, but also, oh my god, what a punk. And I'm, you know, like, I'm so glad that I had just incredible professors pretty much my whole time through uh, who were, like, A, able to be like, it's okay that you have not sold a short story before you even got to college mm -hmm. and be like you know slow down kid you're gonna be okay like mm. this is this is not an overnight thing this is a long game i didn't even know about selling stories honestly um until until college because and then it was um my program was like because I, I did study creative writing in college undergrad um and um but it was more literary fiction based mm -hmm. and um so i didn't really i didn't even know that you could sell um genre <laughs> short stories except for mm -hmm. i vaguely knew about the like writers of the future contest and stuff and so that was kind of um like oh this is the way to get famous is i i write to the writers of the future and stuff. And I didn't find out until much later the issues involved just with that, let alone mm -hmm. the fact that I was wrong um, and that there were places to actually sell stories for money. Um, right. And like, like actual magazines and readerships of, that I could, like I could subscribe to them. I had no idea. Um, I didn't find out about tour.com until I was, I was graduated already. Um, I don't even know how, that got on my radar. I think I just liked Tor. And mm -hmm. so I just went to their website one day and I was like, oh. Hold they up, they've got fiction here. Stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, I guess that was kind of the beginning of the end. I like would, I would print off all of the short fiction and just like read it and like, okay, now. And, and so I knew how to analyze fiction from my lit class and like, like study mm -hmm. it as a writer and all that. And that's when I really was like, all right, my professors, well, they were supportive and kind. Most of them 
um, were like, well, how about you do something a little bit more literary instead of yep, this fantasy Yep, theory? same. And um, I was like, fine, whatever. Um, it's boring now, but whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, no, I did actually, I enjoyed the classes. I enjoyed the stories. I learned a lot from them. But I knew that I wanted to try and take the things I learned in that class and then put them in fantasy and mm-hmm. sci-fi. And people were... I now realize people were doing it. And so um, that's what I started doing, but also kind of had the idea for my novel around the same time. And so for the next few years, it was just bouncing between one and the other. Yeah. And I didn't sell I didn't sell the novel, obviously, until later, but I also didn't sell the short fiction until um, also until later. Like I, my first short story, I sold um, another story that got rejected quite a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um I sold it to Faya um, in 2017. Oh, yeah. It was called Sisyphus, and it was very Sisyphean to get it published. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because by then I I knew about, like, Queers Destroy Science Fiction and stuff, so I'd submitted it there. Got a lovely rejection, my very first personal rejection. Oh, nice. um, What a place to get a personal rejection from. Yeah, I was like, all right, well... The queers are going to destroy science fiction without me, but that's uh-huh. fine. I don't care. Just do it. Um, and, and that was from uh, Shannon McGuire, I think. And that so that was like, I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also I got a lot of form rejections before that. So, you know, yep. keep me keep me humble. <laughs> and then it finally it finally um, sold to um, Faya at the end of that year. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, I, I very much remember, like, for the first, probably for the first two years of undergrad, like, actively resenting the literary stuff, mm-hmm. and then, uh, first, first year and a half actively resenting the literary stuff, and then I had, like, mm-hmm. a breakthrough professor who was like, okay, one, write whatever the fuck you want to, and two, like, we're going to do stuff where you actually connect to, you know, the the professor in question, Lockie Hunter, like, was just an adjunct, adjunct professor, working writer, you know, working journalist. I took pretty much every class she offered uh, from from that first fiction workshop class that I took from her. And, like, you know, I, th- I think partly because her her background was being a working writer and doing mm-hmm. fiction and nonfiction that, like, I could, I could better connect to, like, okay, you know, we're going to do, like, style matching. We're going to, you know, practice, like, read this story, write an excerpt of this story that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. put it in the middle, like you know, fit it into the story wherever you can, like that sort of yeah, thing. I like that. I like that. And it wasn't often what we, what we did in, in the workshops, but I like that kind of stuff a lot. Um, just, yeah, I, I love craft books. I have tons, but I, cause I like these exercises and yeah. they're, they're, it depends on the teacher you have, but yeah. And like, but like your, your point of patience, like I did not have the patience for craft. Like I mm-hmm. only started actually like actively reading my craft books in the last two years. Mm-hmm. And like, I've, you know, I own a ton of craft books. I have, you know, I have steering the craft. I have wonder. Book. Oh, that's my I've... favorite. Both of those actually are my favorite. Yeah. But steering the craft, I just do those over and over again. Ursula Le Guin is just like just what a real one mhm mhm and like yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so other than other than craft books which we could mm-hmm. you know have a whole another hour conversation on uh mm. have you been reading watching listening to uh, playing anything that is just pumping you up right now and you really want to make sure that our listeners know about it as well. Yeah, so um I mean I am reading a lot of a lot of good things. Um 
But one of the things that I would actually like to sort of get people jazzed up about, because um, I'm re- I'm finishing The Expanse, but James S.A. Corey does not need me yeah. to shill that. Um, but I'm actually reading um, The God Killer right now by Hannah Kainer. And Ooh. it's just so good. I'm uh, the the pitch for the the actual story. It doesn't come out until um, like a couple weeks of January, mid January, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's about this girl, whose woman, whose family was killed by a god, and through a different god's blessing, she um, managed to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and now she is essentially a mercenary who kills gods Ooh. instead um, and has to, like, destroy their shrines and stuff to prevent them from, like, rebirthing, mm-hmm. I guess. Because the gods are never quite, quite, quite dead. As long mm-hmm. as someone can remember them and start worshipping them again, they'll come back. So it's kind of a war of attrition, but she goes around and kill them anyway and they're gone for, like, a year or two and then she goes back. Like, that kind of thing is what it seems like. And I'm um, really, really just enjoying myself. So I would highly that recommend. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. Um, that, man, what a, what a concept. It, uh, uh, like, yeah. It also makes me want to reread Terry Pratchett's Small Gods because I haven't read that in like a grip and I love that book. I haven't read it, and so this makes me want to read it. So, it's yeah. so if if anybody wants to understand, uh, understand how I think about belief, the best way to do that is to read uh, Small Gods and Hogfather by Terry Pratchett, which formed so much of my like theological and and like mythological understanding Mm -hmm. um i think they're probably two of the best books on belief that there are and they're very um i mean all the discworld books are great but like those are are very good companions despite having almost none of the same characters except i'm sure death shows up in small gods as well Mm -hmm. um so Strong recommend there. Uh, anybody who knows me and <laughs> wants to get into Pratchett, just tell me what things you're interested in, and I will recommend a Pratchett book to you. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm always here to get people on the Pratchett train. I've got a couple folks have recommended me. I, ha- I haven't read any Pratchett before, so I will. It's on my list, but I will add Small Gods to this like starter. Excellent. Starter list for me. Um, and it, I think that Small Gods will go along very well with uh, God Killer. Cool. Um, obviously a different tone, but yes, uh, yes, thematically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get going, uh, and I know this is a little bit up in the air because, you know, it is November, the elongated muskrat hasn't yet killed twitter somehow but like (laughs) we don't know where can our listeners find you elsewhere in the world well i will drop the twitter because that is my most active place for now um and so it is at c underscore l underscore c l a r k and um my website is just um c l clarkwrites.com Fabulous. Yeah. Uh, Links to both of those will be in the show notes. uh, And as well as your Insta handle, which is also CL Clark Writes. Yes, I forget about Instagram because I have it and I'm even on it vaguely. I just, (laughs) I don't really know how to use it properly. So I just flash some muscles every now and then. (laughs) I mean, honestly, like... Queer muscle babes, what more do you need? Yeah, that's, you know. Yeah. I mean, there are other things you need, like... But not really, not really. Skeletons and swords. 
okay, queer muscle babes and swords and skilled. I mean that, but that's that's the basics. Like yeah, three food groups. Yep. <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I guess queer muscle babes would be the 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 base needs, <laughs> and then skeletons is like you know once you've got your base needs met, and then swords are at the top, maybe. No, I think swords we'd... would be in the middle. Swords would be in the middle for me. Yeah. Because skeletons, I, I, like, I need them, but I think I need the sword first. Yeah. Just yeah, well, especially if, if, if you're uh, one of the belligerents in the skeleton war, like, you got to be able to do the war before the skeletons are here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sheree, it's been such a pleasure having you on uh, really... Can't imagine a better person to have on for our final episode of 2022, which seems wild. Time is absolutely fake. Uh, But Mm -hmm. this conversation, very real. Um, if I may, I, there were there were just there there's something that I, I noticed as I was reading, and I, I just please do sort of wanted to mention it partly because of the the nature of time and trunk stories and the things that we learn in between them. Like as I was reading, there are a few things that I realized the way I was writing, I hadn't really started to interrogate. Um, like the way I was writing about one of the characters, I don't think I would write that today. It's like. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was um, there's a certain amount of you know the phobias in fiction in fantasy in particular, but just in fiction and like so much of that gets internalized. This is just the way you do things, mm-hmm. and um, so like there's this this character. I think I I would say I certainly wrote pretty fat phobically, and mm-hmm. I don't think that. I, I, like, I certainly wouldn't do that today, but I just don't think that I was thinking about that consciously mm-hmm. as, a, as a writer and aware of, like, you know, just aware of things. And the other thing is that um, I think most of my characters in this novel are white. And mm-hmm. for those of you who are listening, I am not white. Yep. Um, and so there are things like that that I know are in this book that I just internalize as this is the way you write in this genre and like I said this is 2009 and this is the first book I ever wrote Mm -hmm. and like I'm so glad this is not the book that got published but I also think that I needed to like I needed to do this so that I could I could learn and Mm -hmm. like now it's it's sort of a continual learning process that like I am not infallible I did not just like I do need to have that patience to continue to make the effort to to change and learn and write and mm-hmm. um, like it's very humbling. It's very humbling um, and just makes me very aware of 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 the ways I was, you know. Yeah, the things we internalize are are. It's so hard to get those out, and it's so. It's really good to be able to like look back and acknowledge them and be like oh that was huh that was fucked up and i uh wouldn't do that now mm-hmm. yeah um yeah uh as as a uh, bit of recommended reading which i i think you probably saw come across your timeline a month ish back uh rk mm-hmm. duncan had a yeah. Uh, just really incredible essay about the problems that science fiction has with fat people uh, that yeah, was up on Twitter. It was really, it was really good. It was really good. I definitely recommend it for everybody. Yeah. So, uh, link to that will be in the show notes. Uh, Robin, if you're listening or not, uh, I told you this in DMs, but like, what a fucking incredible essay! Like, you know. Uh, best related work for my ballot for sure. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, and I really appreciate uh, I really appreciate your hanging a lantern on that one. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, um, yeah. Oh man, now I'm emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come to this yeah. podcast to have emotions. I had came to this podcast to bullshit about things we put in the trunk. Well, it is in the trunk, but for a good reason. Um, yeah. 
Well, thank you again so much for bringing that, for interrogating it, for uh, the words of wisdom and the book wreck. Because I always need more books to go on my never-ending TBR. We all do. We all do. <laughs> uh, listeners, stick around next month when my guests will be Emily Newitz and Juliet Kemp. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter and Tumblr at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisnyx, and tumble there too. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Reject.